Hannah. Andrew. I'm so glad that you could join me here for another episode of Pause It For Me. Spoopy season is upon us. Yay. And that means it's the time to get all cozy <laughs> and just eat some soups and breads. breads and just get all fat and sassy. <laughs> but that also means it's the time to watch some horror-related movies. Mm-hmm. And today... We watched 1931's Dracula, the original Universal picture starring Bela Lugosi, as well as 1984's Return of the Living Dead, which was uh, quite the wild ride. Oh, it was so much fun. But one thing that I want to ask you, we've hinted at this a couple of times, mentioned it outright (laughs) in past episodes, but this time I want to dive a little deeper. So when it comes to Dracula, I have seen the 1931 version. I saw it when I was probably 13. Okay. In mm-hmm. grade eight, on sure. on Halloween of grade Ooh, eight, fancy. Uh, we watched it after trick or treating. Nice. But I haven't seen it since then, and I've seen the Francis Ford Coppola version. We watched that together. Oh man, that was a ride! And I've seen various other uh, uh, various videos describing Dracula and Dracula movies in of detail. Course. But for some reason, I always get confused by the plot. So you have never seen the Bela Lugosi version before today, but you have, in fact, taken a vampire class in college. So can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that was a really interesting class, especially for someone like me that I don't know. I, I hesitate to call myself a goth, but like in some ways I am. I sometimes like indulging in the macabre. So it was fun for me to take a vampire class. I mean, on most given days, I'm listening to you listen to like murder related podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, it's a trend with adult women. It's just, I don't know, psychologically, I think maybe we like to peek behind the curtain a little bit so you feel more safe. Something like that. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me, but sure. What do you mean? <laughs> you feel more safe by listening to murderous stories that are true. Because you know not what you know. You know not what you do. You, you you know what not to do. You know. I don't know. I mean, can you give us an example? What have you learned to keep yourself safe from those podcasts? Well, just to like, you know, to screw You're politeness. You're not convincing me. Here. No, to screw politeness because a lot of times, you know strangers will approach people and they'll just take them at face value and then do things to be polite and it puts them in danger and it's like if you're getting a bad vibe from someone you have a right to not be polite to them hashtag dracula (laughs) hashtag dracula (laughs) that's right i mean me and i shouldn't have been polite to dracula you know but we'll get there so the vampire so the vampire class that was a really fun class because i'm someone that loves you know Interesting history, pop culture, literature, movies, and it was all of that. So we went into the details of the lore. You know, we discussed different vampire versions in pop culture, television show adaptations, and of course, Dracula. As a kid, I had read the book already. Oh, as a kid, you read it? Yeah. I'm oh, I thought you read I'm it as part of, those... of the class. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> When I was a kid, I read a bunch of, yeah, like gothic literature, like Edgar Allan Poe, Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. Dracula. So as a kid, I read this, 
so that partially lended myself to enjoying this class already because I already had a base foundation. So we definitely discussed Bela Lugosi. We watched Nosferatu in class. We, Excellent movie. Yes. Um, the version I saw, though, was kind of bad, though, because it had, had like a stock orchestra track, which just... It didn't lend itself to the experience as much. Right. Well, we've mentioned this in the past. Yeah. Part of the reason we love Nosferatu <laughs> so much, we're biased towards it. Because when we saw it, uh, we saw it in a theater with a live prog rock band doing the music, which elevated the experience exponentially. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, silent movies were kind of intended to be played with live music. Yeah. So. Um, and we'll get well. I'll get into music in a little bit when we get into the topic oh my of Dracula. Goodness. But continue. Yeah. So we discussed all things relating to Dracula because he's kind of like the OG vampire in some regards. Mm -hmm. um, he's kind of like the king of the, the vampires. So we discussed this and Bram Stoker's adaptation of vampirism and how he set like a lot of trends for what vampires do and don't do in the lore. Okay, now this yeah. is filling in a gap in my knowledge here, because maybe I'm dumb in this regard. Okay. But I kind of assumed that the idea of vampirism came from Dracula. Is that not true? Um, I think it was perpetuated. Okay. By, by the novel. But it was around a lot longer than that. Whether it was called specifically vampirism or not, it depended on lore, but a lot of lore was like, Someone is going around doing things at night, spooking people out, biting them, like okay. kind of stuff like that. Sure. So, you know, that could maybe fall under the camp of zombieism, which mm -hmm. kind of like they both have similar vibes. Yeah. Like sometimes in zombie adaptations, they're all about like just kind of like <laughs> biting into people kind of like vampires and sometimes in some zombie adaptations like the one we watched today they just want brains mm -hmm. and with dracula he just wants blood to stay youthful right um so yeah that was really fascinating it was really fun because a lot of the classes were just us like reading like chapters out of books and discussing them or like watching movies and discussing that stuff right <laughs> it's really fun well so I'll, I don't think I really need to explain what Dracula is about, but no. for the sake of trend in our podcast, I'll read the logline. Transylvanian vampire Count Dracula bends a naive real estate agent to his will, then takes up residence at a London estate where he sleeps in his coffin by day and searches for potential victims by night. So what is there to say about this that hasn't already been said? Well, I'm going to try and find something because <laughs> I hear nothing but praise for this movie. There's a lot of good things going for it, for sure. And the person who has introduced me to more, uh, you know, classic films than I can count via the Internet, that being James Rolfe, and who inspired me in many, many ways. This is one of his favorite movies of all time. And he talks sure. about it constantly and actually one video that i love and i hope you love it too hannah because i've made you it watch is it interesting i've made you watch it many a time and i'm gonna make you watch it again as soon as this of podcast course. is over i would expect nothing less is this long video that james rolf has where he, he compares like 12 or 15 or so different movie adaptations of dracula to see how accurate they are to the source material so James Rolfe loves Dracula, and I've watched many a James Rolfe mm -hmm. video discussing Dracula in depth. 
But when it comes to this movie, mm-hmm. I just don't quite see it. Here's the thing. It's way better than Frankenstein. Well, yeah. So last year we watched the Universal Frankenstein, which came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. And it this definitely was better than Frankenstein. However, I had the same complaint for both movies, which is that they're way too quiet because there's no music. And that was, I me- that was a trend back then. Yeah, I mentioned that that can work to a certain degree. If you have music in some parts of the film and then choose to have a silent moment to really punctuate how creepy something is, that can really work and be effective. Mm-hmm. But just to have the entire film be silent really takes away some of the power that some moments could have. Mm-hmm. And- I'm, I'm wondering, because we're coming, like, this is, like, such a new era of talkies. Like, for some people, this was their first talkie production. I'm wondering if they still pl- played live music at the theaters or not and maybe that's why it's quiet okay so i'll dive into a little bit of trivia here i didn't think i would need to get into the trivia for dracula because it's such an interesting movie with so much history surrounding it but this fills in the conversation pretty nicely so there was no real musical soundtrack in the film because it was believed that with sound being such a recent innovation in films the audience would not accept hearing music in a scene if there was no explanation for it being there Example, the orchestra playing off camera when Dracula meets Mina in the theater. Oh, I see. I think that was a poor choice. Well, it's because they're new to it, so they're they're dumb. Wow. Okay. But <laughs> they they don't realize how powerful it can be to have a a track of I always forget which one it is. Is it non diegetic? Non-diegetic, yeah. yeah. Diegetic means it's happening within the world of the characters right. and they can hear it. Yeah, it, it can re- be really powerful, but I think they, especially back then, they were worried about taking things a little little too literally, you know? I suppose. Yeah. Well, I guess the medium was still in its infancy, you know? They only had Definitely. a couple decades of music there. But I just felt like... This could have been such an easily certified classic if it had music, especially because of the way that it started. It starts and you hear the and I'm like, yes, iconic. Okay, let's get into it. And there was a lot to love about this movie. Like Bela Lugosi's performance is magnetic. Visually, it's iconic. Yeah, he definitely became the archetype forever. Like if you think of Dracula, it's him. Yeah, that so. f- that first shot that you see of him where they do that slow dolly into him standing like that a statue. Was, like they knew cool. it's like they knew it was going to be iconic. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and every close up of his eyes just looking so intense. Everything that he brought to like the weird way that he stands and moves in the performance. Amazing. Was awesome. Some of the side characters were, were lacking a little bit, but they're not really there to steal the show. But yeah. Dwight Fry as Renfield, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, he was good. The way that he transitions between, you know, like kind of mild mannered at the beginning and then deranged and and mad, as they say, uh, only like a few minutes in was such a great turn. For you sure. know, like when you first yeah. see him after he becomes Dracula's slave, he almost for a second seems like a different actor. You know, because that that guy's range is so nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked his creepy smile. Yeah, it was excellent. He definitely played Renfield well. Like reading the book, just kind of the maniacal nature of him. It it, it is close to what I would picture as Renfield for sure. Totally. And so I'm going to rely on you a little bit here in a second for 
for accuracy to the source material. And I know you read it a long time ago, but I will pick your brain about it a a little bit. But just wrapping up on the music, I just felt like that would have been such a nice way to seal the deal on this movie standing the test of time. But because there's no music, it does feel really dated. Yeah, of course. It would be interesting to see it at like a theater with music underneath. I think it would be like probably 10 times better with cool music underneath. Yeah, Yeah. I I probably made the same comment when we watched Frankenstein last year, but I would be interested to see online if people have added their own score to this movie. Oh, I'm sure. Because I think it would be easy. There's no score to remove, so you just put one underneath. Well, yeah, that's just what it made it so much worse. Like, at least for times with Dracula, it's like there was an ominous feeling. Yeah. But like, it just would have enhanced the experience just to add in like at least some in some parts, you know? Speaking of putting a custom soundtrack under a movie that didn't originally have it. What? No, no, no. Go go for it. What are you assuming I'm going to say right oh, now? Oh, I thought you were going to transition to the next film, which I really love their soundtrack. Oh, well, well we can, we're we, not we'll, done we'll, on Dracula we'll chat, yet. We'll chat about that. I was just going to say on the top, now that James Rolfe is on my mind, he posted a uh, video or a couple of videos like over a decade ago where he put ACDC music over scenes in First Blood. Ooh. And that was cool. That sounds fun. <laughs> That's something I would love to see people do more. So coming back to accuracy to the source material. We were both a little confused when the movie started because we we had watched the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula sure. less than a year ago or maybe just around a year ago. It's, I, it all blends together. I We might have seen Dracula a year ago or it might have been like two years ago. <laughs> right. And this is what I keep saying. Every time I'm exposed to a Dracula film or anything Dracula related, I always feel like I ingest the plot and then two hours later I forget it, which is why I rewatched that video so many times comparing all the different versions of Dracula. Yeah, well, I mean, you also have ADHD, so it's hard for you to latch onto some ideas sometimes because your brain is moving like a million miles a minute. Sorry, I have no idea what you just said. I wasn't listening. But anyway. Very funny. We were <laughs> we were confused watching this because um, Renfield came on screen and I knew what Dwight Fry's face looked like and mm-hmm. I, I knew what Renfield looked like in this film. And so when he came on screen, I knew it was Renfield. And I said to you, I'm pretty sure that's Renfield. And you were like, what? That's supposed to be Jonathan Harker. And I was like, are you sure? And you were like, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so let me ask you about that. What was going on with like the different characters filling in different roles? Like, Because I, I seem to remember Jonathan Harker being more important in the Francis Ford Coppola version. And I don't yeah. even I don't even really remember Renfield in the Francis Ford Coppola version. Yeah, here's the thing. <laughs> Okay. In in the book, it's really fascinating the way that they break it down. It's almost like the Victorian version of the Blair Witch Project, if this makes sense, is the structure of the book is supposed to be letters back and forth. And mostly it's letters like Jonathan sends to Mina, Mina sends to Jonathan, Lucy sends to Mina, describing their experiences as they're happening. Right, okay. So it's supposed to be kind of like, not like found footage, but like found letters kind of make it like seem like based on a true story kind of vibe, realistic. Fair enough. The Martian is kind of written in that same way, but it's like diary entries. So it's everything's like after the fact. He's like, let me tell you about my day yesterday. It is a little bit confusing and it can be a little bit daunting just because it's it was written in Victorian time. And I feel like whenever I read Victorian fiction, it just feels so much denser and it's a little bit harder to get through. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Jonathan is supposed to be like a real estate agent that goes to see Count Dracula. Oh my goodness, Count Dracula. Count Dracula. <laughs> yeah, and I think the reason why they combined him with Renfield is just to make it easier and to give like one of the characters more screen time. I think the idea is Jonathan is supposed to be the catalyst for everything that's happening. Like, you know, he, um, he meets Dracula, you know, Dracula comes back with him. He in the, like, like introduces in the him to Mina. Yeah. Not exactly. in this movie. In this movie, like they kind of reduced him. Whereas Renfield is more supposed to be kind of like a, a smaller character. Like to my remembrance of the novel, it's like, Jonathan is there on business and then the weird sisters like those three ladies that you see at the beginning they like trap him and they're like (laughs) they're feeding on him for like a month and he's like stuck under their control like hypnotized and then he is able to like break away and then eventually Dracula like chases after him like on a boat like later and I think it's like you see like a newspaper article or you like someone is writing to someone about the newspaper article of like a boat where everyone's like dead and it's right. like we saw that have... newspaper in this movie. Yeah, so you assume it's like oh it's Dracula. And then Dracula comes by, he hypnotizes Renfield, he becomes like the slave character and then like eventually, you know, Dracula goes after Lucy and it's supposed to be kind of like Kind of an ongoing thing in vampirism as, like, a theme is, like, um, morality, which is why, you know, Dracula doesn't, like, crosses and stuff because it's, like, supposed Mm -hmm. to be, like, holy, holy water, that kind of thing because he's, you know, supposed to be, like... Because Dracula has such great morals. (laughs) No, he's against it. You know, like, he's supposed to be, like, kind of, like, a face of evil, you know? So one reason why he goes after Lucy first... And they go into it in the books and in um, the Coppola version mm-hmm. is she's supposed to be like a bit of like a player. Like she's like dating several men and okay. like she's maybe seen as a little bit more promiscuous in the Victorian times. So she's a little more like um, I hate to like get there, get in, there, in, 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 bring in, it home. In Victorian times, she was maybe seen as more unpure. So that was maybe more appealing to Dracula okay. as like a first victim. But then he like obviously has a soft spot for Mina and everything. And that that's all kind of similar. Soft spot's yeah. one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember most of that uh, happening to Keanu Reeves in the Francis Ford Coppola version. But in this, it felt like... Jonathan Harker lifted right out. Like, I feel like you could cut him out Pretty and not much. lose very much. Yeah. Which is just, like, why why give his role to Renfield then? Because, like, then he really doesn't, almost doesn't matter to the plot at all. Exactly. You know? They kind of made Renfield the star of the show. So, or like, other than Lugosi. So. Yeah. Well, as much as I'm giving praise to this, we're dancing around the fact that... It, even if this movie had had music, I don't think like it would have stood the test of time. Sure. But I don't think it really deserves to be among the classics of film. Let's say like, obviously the character is super iconic, but I just don't think that the plot of Dracula is very good to me. It's one of those stuff happens movies. 
I don't yeah. think I don't I don't think it's written particularly well. I don't think there's any really good plant and payoff. I don't think the the plot doesn't really make sense to me. Like I said, mm-hmm. just kind of like this happens, and then Pretty after much. that, this happens, and then this happens, and then like that's owing to the source material. But then yeah, it's cou- all past tense and letters. Yeah, couple that with the fact that there's no music, it leads to ultimately spoilers. What is one of the most anticlimactic moments in, a, in a movie? ever which is like one of the most iconic and famous movie villains of all time dracula is killed with no fanfare off, off screen. screen and then the movie just kind of ends it's like He's yep like, the end it's universal picture yep well even worse still was frankenstein which came out you know like a couple years later where there was like the added scene at the end with like Dr. Frankenstein's dad or someone's some, dad. Someone's I dad. That, yeah. And he's like, oh, ho, ho, ho. And I was like, why Why do we need the scene? What's adding to this? Yeah. If you want to hear more about our thoughts on the Universal Track or uh, Frankenstein, that is, you can go back and watch our previous episode from last year around October from For season sure. one. Yeah. Like the idea of the universal monsters, like they definitely created like such great lore and started something really great. But I feel like looking back, a lot of 1930s movies are a hard pill to swallow because they were transitioning from, you know, the silent era to talkies and they were kind of having trouble like it was a little rough going and then by the 40s they really found their stride and then i think cinema gets a lot better and it's a lot more modern to what we know by that point you know because yeah. we, have, we have films like his girl friday which is amazing we have rebecca which is great you know so on and so on and then it gets gradually better from there as you know more filmmakers understand talkies and how to use music and film and how to you know, adapt to be more subtle performances compared to the silent era where you had to do everything big. <laughs> so it's just, I don't know. And well, take it with what it is, the 1930s movie, you know. Uh, yeah, again, as much as we have been complaining a little bit lately of going through our lesson in film history, as yeah. I've called it, the whole point of that was to start early in the 1910s and work our way through chronologically so that by the time we hit the 1930s, we had a good idea of what movies were like in the decades prior to that, and we were able to appreciate it for what it was doing at the time. For sure. As opposed to watching it through a 2023 lens and being like, "Mm, it's kind of boring. Yeah, well, like if you look back like a couple of years before Dracula, you got Metropolis, Mm -hmm. which is great in scale, but in terms of performances... Maybe a little lacking. <laughs> well, apples and oranges, you sure. know, silent film. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll read a, uh, rattle off a couple pieces of trivia right, right real quick here, and uh, it'll be uh, real nice and cool. Hannah, get ready for this piece of trivia. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm, my body is ready, yeah. Dracula never once blinks his eyes, Ooh. an effect that enhances the undead character's otherworldly aura, abetted by Bela Lugosi's famous menacing stare. Mm-hmm. Effective. Effective. <laughs> <laughs> nice. While it is rumored that Bela Lugosi could not speak English very well and had to learn his lines phonetically, this is not true. Lugosi was speaking English as well as he ever would by the time this was filmed. Well, considering he played Dracula on Broadway prior to this film, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> exactly. And that I didn't even really know that. So when the film opened and it was like adapted from the stage play version, I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. 
And that leads right into my next piece of trivia. Bela Lugosi was so eager to repeat his stage success and play the Count Dracula role for the film version that he agreed to a contract paying him $500 per week for a seven-week shooting schedule. Mm -hmm. A paltry sum, even during the days of the Depression. It's one of those roles where it's like it's a life-defining career move to be in it, but it also is like it kind of taints everything else you're in because everyone's gonna see you as dracula forever yeah i suppose one other thing that i i can say is a small complaint about this film is just that it really had to censor itself in terms of some of the more gory moments and that didn't lend well to the ending (laughs) yeah like i i understand i know that film audiences at the time you know as marty mcfly would say guess you're not ready for that yet but your kids are going to love it. Yeah, pretty much. But what it led to is like anytime Dracula bites someone, they don't they don't show it. Yeah. Um, anything, you know, kind of remotely gory or, or interesting that happens, even like Dracula turning into a bat. Like you could argue that the effects weren't there yet to yeah. do that at the time. But I think only a couple of years later or maybe just around the same time, they had the effect of uh, the wolfman turning into the werewolf. For sure. Well, so th- he... he- <laughs> He turned into a werewolf off screen. Exactly. They, they yeah. could have found some way to do it. Just but, have a dog. <laughs> but then again, the big one at the end of the movie when Dracula gets a stake through the heart, it's done n- not only off screen, but when you see the character about to do it, he's like almost way in the background with his back turned to the camera. And like, like it's he's opening a box, so you can't even really see Bela. Yeah. She's like, is there a way that we could have shot it more like the close up of like the biting? Where it's like we see him about to stake Bela or something and then cut away. At least that, that's a little more satisfying. Right. So as somebody who had read the novel mm-hmm. and had seen the Francis Ford Coppola version and had not seen this version yet, how did this stack up to your expectations? It was about what I expected. But I kind of knew a lot going into it that mm-hmm. a lot of versions of the novel kind of decide to take creative license and just kind of take what they want from it and leave out what they want from it so i mean coppola was pretty faithful to the book except they added like some weird scenes with mina you could put it that way sure more more fantastical moments and stuff but in general it was more faithful like you know they had all that stuff with jonathan and everything so (laughs) So what would you rate it out of 10 out of 5, however you want to rate it? Well, I was really happy to see Bela in the role and all that was really great. And it was a better experience than Drac- or than Frankenstein by far. So, hmm, maybe like a 7. Like there were some really good moments to it, but it was also like it had like the 1930s-ism where it was like a lot of lame stuff as well. I did like the shot of the mirror, the cigarette box lid of the mirror showing the reflection. I was happy they did something with that because that happens in the book where like Jonathan's like going to like shave his face or something and then Dracula comes up behind him and like... Like, he's like, oh, I didn't see him in the mirror. What the heck? And he, like, cuts himself shaving and, like, Dracula's, like, visibly, like, disturbed. Kind mm-hmm. of like the paperclip thing. Yeah. Um. Apparently, in the stage play, though, they had, like, a giant mirror doing that effect. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, how. 
I don't know. I didn't read like so much into that but like the actors were kind of like why in the movie didn't you do like a giant mirror you just did like a little cigarette box thing but either way it was effective so probably i'm if i had to guess i would say if they used a mirror that was too big you'd see the camera that's probably it which stage actors probably wouldn't account for that's true that's true that's That's smart i would struggle to give it a seven i would probably give it a six out of ten just because like Yes, it it deserves music, but even on top of that, like it's just not that great. No, I mean, like it, again, there's a lot to like about it, but plot wise, I'm like, whatever. I just feel like a lot of 1930s movies leave a bad taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Like they just they're just falling short of what they can be, and that's later fulfilled later down the line in cinema. So it's just hard for me as a like barometer to be like, you know, it's like they have to leave a lot of stuff out and, you know, because of budget reasons or just like they don't know how to do effects yet. Things are a little more boring and they tell instead of showing and, you know, it's it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly better 1930s movies. I yeah. mean, such as uh, I mean, Gone with the Wind was that, better. That was late in the era, though, wasn't it? It was like 38. Well, okay then, 39, but who's well, counting? Well, that's what made it like, you know, record-breaking, like everyone's favorite movie, Oscar award-winning, is because it was like so astounding to what like we, you, like what the world had seen thus far as what you could do in cinema. Yeah. Heidi. Sure, Heidi's better. Cute. I mean, again, yeah. that's late 30s. The grandfather. But I mean, in terms of like the, the movies that we'd been watching lately, I mean, we watched King Kong and we were kind of. Oh, that was underwhelming. Yeah. Wizard of Oz. Again, oh, was, late the 30s. Wizard of Oz is good. But. You know. Yeah. By that time, they'd maybe figured out a few things. Yeah. <laughs> There's more music in the Wizard of Oz. I guess if I had to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, <laughs> I'd probably say the 1930s my least favorite decade of films overall. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Because, like, at least in the silent era, you saw what they were trying to do. And, like, I feel like the limitation at least lended itself to the the experience of it. Like, you were leaning into the kitsch almost. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the 30s, it's just a little stilted and boring. Right. Well, in addition to Dracula... Talk about kitsch. We also yeah. watched another movie called Return of the Living Dead. And now you might actually think that this is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. And it's It's kind kind of, of, yeah, kind of a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. So this is a movie that came out in 1984. Uh, Well, maybe filmed in 84, came out in 85. The the credits in the, um, you know, like the cue cards in the movie was like 1984, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, directed by Dan Mm O'Bannon. And here's the logline. When two bumbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air, the vapors cause the dead to rise again as zombies. Now, so this is a really interesting set of circumstances here that I've only seen in only one other movie comes to mind that has done this, where it's not a sequel to a movie. It's not really a spiritual sequel to a movie. I mean, it kind of is, but spiritual sequels are usually done by the same director. But it's like it's meta. Almost. It, it's meta. So basically, yeah. what happens is the characters in the movie refer to Night of the Living Dead. They're like, "Oh, you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? This is like that movie." When the dead start to rise again, 
Yeah. But it's different in that it follows different rules of zombieism than Night of the Living Dead does. The Night of the that's a mouthful. The yeah. Night of the Living Dead zombies and the Dawn of the Dead zombies, they're slow, they're not smart, they don't talk, they're just after brains or whatever. And I think they just kind of bite anything. Yeah, that's that's that. Yeah. Whereas the zombies in this, like they can be fast occasionally, but they're a lot smarter. Like they're they have wherewithal. Yeah, they have figure. they have wherewithal. They know how to use simple machines and pulleys to exert force enough to open a door. Yeah, the you know? zombies are like bring more paramedics. Yeah, they know how to <laughs> they know how to speak. Yeah, uh, they know how to lay traps, uh, and that was extremely interesting. It was really spooky. Other than that, it abides by pretty typical like horror movies. Horror movie cliches, zombie movie cliches, and standard plot lines for a zombie movie. You know, like we start out with a big group and uh, they each kind of fall off one by one. But there's something comforting about that, though. The style that it did it in, I was really pleased with. It was really fun. Like, I think the soundtrack added a lot to that. It was a great soundtrack. And just like the characters, like the punk characters really interesting so yeah as far as 80s movies goes there's certain movies like modern movies or modern tv shows that look at the 80s they have like a flashback to the 80s and they show like people with colored mohawks and like leather jackets with studs and stuff and bright socks and you're like did anyone in the 80s actually dress like that or is that just what yeah. we think the 80s is? But then this movie, 1985, shows a whole group of punk teenagers dressed exactly like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess people really did dress like that in right. the 80s. I mean, like they're supposed to be heightened versions of like an alternative crowd. Oh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, I don't think like obviously people like Bird and Ernie didn't dress like that. So. Speaking of which, apparently that naming was a coincidence. That's funny. Bert, the character of Bert and Ernie were not named after the Sesame Street Muppets. Huh. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. There was definitely some really spooky elements about that, like the yellow man in the beginning. It was frightening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the little puppy. That's so weird. I should I should be clear. We're talking about a literally colored yellow man. We're not trying to be like. Oh yeah racist yeah yeah. Over here. Sorry, that didn't even occur to me because I wouldn't <laughs> to say that. Okay, moving on. <laughs> but I agree with you. There are a lot of legitimately creepy effects in this. Yeah. And the the beginning of the movie started with a the credits rolling over a, a skull with like wax a wax face melting. And I don't even know if this was before or after Raiders of the Lost Ark, which obviously has a very famous face melting scene. But this looked as easily as good, if not maybe even better than the face melting in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was legitimately creepy. Mm -hmm. And the the zombie character who ends up getting his face melted is like very, very unnerving and scary when he like gets up. Like I... I get particularly freaked out by the stop motion effects of the T-800 at the end of the first Terminator movie. Sure. But I think that the the zombie covered in tar in this movie rivals that in terms of creepiness. Like and he could talk and stuff. Yeah, there's a shot of one character being chased by him up the stairs, and one of the stairs breaks and it gets stuck. And the way that the camera is framed, you see this the character being chased in the foreground and the tar zombie in the background. 
And I was, I said out loud, I was like, that's scary. <laughs> that is scary. Cause it's like, you want to feel like you're in the character's shoes being like, oh, she can run away. And then she gets stuck and it's like, oh no, she's done for. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently they rigged that step to break without telling the actress. <gasps> so that was a real reaction. Well, that's smart, but also not that kind yeah. to the actor. But so. as far as horror movies go, this was effective in that there mm-hmm. were a couple of times that I heard you like yelp and turn your eyes away from the screen you know like when a character got bit on the head or like when something got sliced open you're like "Ah!" well here's the thing is i generally (laughs) enjoy kind of like dark comedy type stuff some macabre type stuff yeah like you're normally not squeamish you're normally fine i don't like gore so seeing like a zombie eat someone's head freaky I, I can't point to any specific moment before watching this movie where it seemed like you were freaked out by gore. Maybe the thing, but again, that's that a, spooky. That's a very gross, gore-heavy movie that's freaky. I think a lot of the stuff we watch, though, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Fair, yeah. Like, Dawn of the Dead, I don't remember too many gratuitous gore moments it there were definitely gratuitous gore moments in dawn of the dead but they didn't look real they didn't look particularly real maybe just because some of it looked a little bit more real in this one i was a little more spooked if it looks fake like i'm not gonna be you know i can see the behind the curtains or you know the mist or that kind of thing so yeah well i think the reason why we liked this movie was because again like you just said we're we tend to draw more towards horror movies that don't take themselves too seriously and have a good degree of comedy in them so this is definitely in the camp of like evil dead yeah evil dead dawn of the dead nightmare on elm street and this this definitely did that i Mm -hmm. mean you had for sure you had again zombies setting kind of goofy traps and then you know this is like new nightmare because it's kind of like taking place in the same universe yeah yeah and then like other zombies running around completely naked and doing dances and stuff and it was a fun time so what i was going to say earlier the only other example that i've seen that comes to mind of of a sort of sequel like this is the movie son of rambo have you heard of this movie no this is a movie that's about two kids who find like a vhs copy of rambo And get obsessed with it and start to reenact it and all that because they love it so much. Well, something that kind of springs to mind is maybe My Name is Bruce. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit in that same sort of camp, like Bruce Campbell being himself releasing Dead (laughs) Ice. Yeah. So. Why don't you give the audience a quick little rundown of that movie? Well, I've only seen the first scene. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. Oh. We had, yeah. We haven't watched it together? No, it was kind of like Bruce Campbell's kind of like an imitation of himself and he had like accidentally opens like the Book of the Dead and then he has to like deal with it. Something like that. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, basically it's like some evil spirit gets released in a small town and fans of Evil Dead come to Bruce Campbell and be like, you gotta, you gotta help us with this. And he's like, okay, yeah, sure. Because he thinks they're talking about making a mo- another movie. And then he yeah. goes to help, and then once he realizes it's real, he runs away like a coward. But maybe he I don't comes. Blame him, maybe honestly. he comes back. I, I'll never tell. <laughs> I mean, in a zombie movie, what kind of role would you fit into? Would you try to barricade yourself off 
kind of like I want to say his name is Dwayne in the original one or if that was just the actor's name barricade yourself off hope to like stay till morning kind of thing Mm. or would you be proactive trying to get in the car shoot people down I don't think I would want I would put myself in harm's way so easily Mm -hmm. but I think like as soon as you find out that something is wrong the clock is ticking to gain as much ground as possible before zombies spread out. Yeah. So I would terrifying. be I would be like, hey, we gotta we gotta make a quick plan and get to the safest possible place where we'll we'll be barricaded enough from zombies, but we'll have enough space to like live. Which is what made Dawn of the Dead such a perfect choice is to go in a shopping mall where they had everything that they would ever need, basically. As opposed to Night of the Living Dead, where it's like, okay, they're trapped in a house. How long could they possibly stay there yeah. before having to leave the house? And then, oops, the zombies get them as soon as they step out. It was definitely an interesting level up. It's like, I think Night of the Living Dead is kind of everyone's first instinct. And then kind of Dawn of the Dead took it to the next level. Right. Well, I got a couple pieces of fun trivia here for Return of the Living Dead. So the first one is... The filmmakers had to get approval from Lysol to have Frank spray away the stench of death with their product. Apparently, That's funny. they liked the idea that Lysol would kill any conceivable odor. Sure. <laughs> That's funny. Um, on the back of Freddy's jacket in the theatrical version, <laughs> <laughs> the words F*** you are displayed. After realizing that the shot cannot be used in case it was ever shown on TV, a second jacket was made that says television version. It says television version? Apparently, That's really funny. That's amazing. Um, So one thing that I I realized after we watched the movie is by accident, we watched two movies back to back that had the same actor in it. Now, to clarify for the audience, we we watched Return of the Living Dead first. And then we watched Dracula, but we watched two movies back to back that had Miguel A. Nunez Jr. in it. And that was the black man in Return of the Living Dead. Okay. Do you, did you recognize having seen him extremely recently? No. He played the voodoo guy in Scooby-Doo, which we watched like yesterday. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really weird. Well, this movie came out in like 85 and like Scooby-Doo came out in like what, 2001? So uh, like 20 years Somewhere older. along that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so weird. But anyway, uh, apparently he was homeless when he was cast in this movie. Oh, no. Yeah. I hoped it helped him get out of the streets. Me too. Seems like it. So one thing that I wanted to talk about is the relationship that this has to the original Night of the Living Dead. And so I'll read this piece of trivia here that will hopefully shine a little bit of light on it. Mm -hmm. So John A. Russo, one of the writers on this film, had previously teamed up with George A. Romero to make Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, both men had different ideas for sequels, so they parted ways and Russo started working on an adaptation of a novel he had written called Return of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. while Romero was making Dawn of the Dead. An independent producer, Tom Fox, bought Russo's script. He set up production and gave the script to Dan O'Bannon. However, O'Bannon refused to direct it as written. He felt it was too much of a serious attempt to make a sequel to Night of the Living Dead and did not want to intrude so directly on Romero's turf. Fair enough. It was rewritten to occur in a fictional universe where Night of the Living Dead is a movie based on true events with more humor up to the point where it only superficially resembled the novel. I enjoyed it just because... You know, like, Dawn of the Dead's great, Night of the Living Dead's great, 
but it was fun to see something maybe a little bit different. It's also kind of spooky in one regard is like you basically can't kill the zombies. And that's yeah. kind of terrifying because it's like at least in other adaptations, it's like, oh, you smack them in the head or, you know, you shoot them and they're dead. But in this, it's like, no, you have to burn them completely. And it's like, that's spooky. Yeah. And such a unique scenario outside the the realm of the film in that this is an example of like two different series of sequels to the same well, or sort of sequels to the same one movie. Right. So you have Night of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead 2. I heard there were more sequels. Yeah. And then you have Dawn of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Day of the Dead, right. Diary of the Dead. Diary of the Dead. Yeah. And then I, that's I think, is another found footage movie. Oh, uh, interesting. Also, I think it's also by George Romero. I eat brains today. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then it, it's there's another example of a, a different line of sequels to the same movie in that uh, if you've watched the James Rolfe, coming back to him again, chronologically confused video, you know that Dawn of the Dead was recut to be a movie called Zombie, and right. then there were additional yeah. sequels to the movie Zombie. So that's like three different offshoots of sequels that all stem from the original Night of the Living Dead. I find that very interesting. I think it's such a simple concept zombieism that there's a lot of different things that you can do with it and i can see why it splintered off the way it did right so i thought this was great i'm gonna give this an easy eight out of ten it's very fun and the soundtrack definitely helps like during some of the more like intense moments there was just like a really fun kind of like spooky but like jaunty kind of track like and stuff like that and there was um it's like some surf punk music. Like I looked it up early, like later, and um, it featured a lot of California punk music. Right. And I was like, that makes so much sense. And a particular band, specifically the Cramps, which are kind of like known for that surf punk vibe, were in the movie. And I was like, oh, I knew it. So that just kind of adds to the fun, like especially all the punks and like all that kind of silliness worked in. So. Yeah, well, I imagine the cramps are having a resurgence right now because of being used in uh, Wednesday. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Muck. Yes. Yeah, that's a fun track. Oh, yes. Goo muck, oh yes. yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I would definitely rewatch this. I know Bytown Cinema, the, or one of our local cinemas, does drunken cinema nights where they show this, where you're supposed to like drink during like certain scenes. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So I would definitely maybe like go to showing like that or, you know, show it to friends in the future. Definitely a lot of fun. Um, I would definitely revisit it later on. I would give it like an easy aid as well. Rad. Right on. Yeah. Right on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so this is officially going to be our Halloween episode, but we're actually watching it still smack dab in the middle of October. It's October Halloween. 15th right now. So we're going to we're going to go on and we're going to watch some more spooky movies. Mm-hmm. Probably won't talk about them on mic, but everybody enjoy your Halloweens yeah. and look forward to the next episode of Pause It For Me. Yeah. Make sure to eat a lot of treats and watch a lot of movies. And get plenty of tummy aches and then get somebody to pat your tummy. That sounds great. Cool. Take care. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye.